Welcome back. This is the perfect puzzle. We are finishing up Holy Week and I've included Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We know it is Easter. Uh, we're going to have a word of prayer and jump in. Lord, I ask you to strengthen this teaching. Strengthen me, Lord, with the presence of your Holy Spirit. That your Holy Spirit would enable each and every listener, Father, to learn something from this study today. Lead us and guide us, Father, and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, <clears throat> Resurrection Sunday. Mark's account of the resurrection is only eight verses, and it highlights the women's discovery, the empty tomb, and the angelic announcement. Matthew focuses 20 verses on the resurrection, and he describes only one appearance by Jesus in Jerusalem to a group of women fleeing from the tomb. The only other resurrection appearance in Matthew takes place in Galilee, which is where he gives the Great Commission to the disciples. Now Luke's account is 53 verses long. He has no description of resurrection appearances outside of Jerusalem, except for two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, helps us understand that Jesus appeared to his followers over a period of 40 days. That's Acts, 1, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. The two most important elements in Luke's resurrection account are the physicality of Jesus' resurrection and how his death and resurrection fulfill scripture. John's account is the longest, spanning two chapters and 56 verses that describes a series of resurrection appearances both in Jerusalem and in Galilee. Now, early Sunday morning, the women made their way to the tomb. They weren't going to embalm Jesus' body, as we often think. They were going to uh, anoint his body with the spices to cover the smell of decomposition. You know, they wanted to ensure his body received an honorable burial. Now, why would they anoint Jesus' corpse after the burial by Joseph and Nicodemus? The answer to that question may be nothing more than their love for Jesus and a desire to ease their grief. Now, that they intended to anoint his body clearly shows they had no expectation that Jesus would be alive. Matthew says there was an earthquake as the women were arriving at the tomb. The exact timing of the earthquake and the appearance of the angels in relation to it is pretty difficult to unravel. But the two events probably happened simultaneously at the same time. According to Matthew, an angel rolled back the large stone that secured the tomb. I said Matthew 28. The description of the angels is one of splendor and grandeur. It's not unlike other descriptions of angelic beings in, in the Bible. Matthew describes them as his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. Now the appearance of the angel so shocked the Roman soldiers. Uh, verse 4, Matthew says, they, they became like dead men. Now these soldiers had been sent to secure the tomb by order of Pontius Pilate at the request of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They thought the disciples might steal Jesus' body and propagate a lie that he had been raised from the dead. So after fleeing from the tomb, the guards conspired with the Sanhedrin to come up with a lie accusing the disciples of actually stealing Jesus' body. Now the women, as they approached, they encountered two angels, 
Mary Magdalene left to report the empty tomb to Peter and John. The other women were the first to hear the good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The angel invited them to examine the empty, empty tomb and he reminded them that Jesus told them he would be raised from the dead just as he said, as the angel says in Matthew 28, 6. He then told them to go and tell the disciples that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. Now the women left the tomb with a mixture of fear, astonishment, and joy. They didn't say anything to anyone as they made their way to the disciples, and that's from Mark 16, 8. Mary Magdalene reported to Peter and John the removal of the stone and the likely taking of Jesus' body. That's in John chapter 20. Now they may have been in the upper room or in another safe location in the city or they may even have returned to, to uh, Bethany. Regardless of their location, they ran to the tomb. Now John got there first with Peter following shortly behind. Now John was hesitant to enter the tomb. You know, he stooped down because the opening would have been approximately three feet high, and he saw the linen cloths laying there. You know, if grave robbers had stolen the body, they wouldn't have left those expensive wrappings. Peter rushed right past John, and he entered the tomb. He saw not only the linen wrappings, but also the wrapping that had been on his head, which was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Now this graphic detail not only points to an eyewitness reminiscence of but also John's emphasis on the scene. The grave clothes were in the same position on the burial shelf as when Jesus' body was lying there. And the orderliness of the scene suggests Jesus came to life and his body passed through the grave clothes. After John joined Peter in the tomb, what John saw convinced him Jesus was alive. He went in, saw, and believed. Peter apparently returned confused and puzzled. Now later, Jesus made numerous appearances to his followers. Except for the road to Emmaus with two of his followers, all these appearances took place in Jerusalem, as I said earlier. Now Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. That Sunday morning, she had no idea Jesus was, was alive. So she stooped to look inside the tomb. She encountered two angels. Now the description of the exact location of where they were seated points to an eyewitness memory. Her question concerning her tears was a subtle rebuke. For there was no reason to be crying tears of sorrow when Jesus was alive. Her concern for Jesus' body is further evidence of, of her lack of understanding. And then the exchange between Mary and Jesus is very moving. She thinks him to be the gardener and hopes she could learn from him where she could find Jesus' body. But then the moment he spoke her name, she recognized his voice. Why didn't she recognize him immediately? You know, knowing for certain is difficult. There may have been several factors involved. A combination of her tears, the darkness of the early morning hour, the unpreparedness for him to be alive, all may have played a part. We should remember that on numerous occasions after his resurrection, his followers failed to recognize him immediately. And Mary's embrace is a natural response of one who has an unexpected reunion with a loved one. And Jesus told her not to touch him as he had not yet ascended to the Father. 
He gave her the mission to report to the disciples that he was alive. But I want to explain one other reason to, that Jesus isn't immediately recognized. You got to remember, Jesus had a beard. According to Isaiah, Jesus' beard was plucked out by hand during his passion. Who knows what happened to his head with those thorns? I mean, you ever seen someone who's worn a beard and then you see it after years and then you see them, they've shaved it off? They don't look like themselves. I think that's probably what's going on with them not being able to recognize Jesus. Now, the one thing to remember about why Mary's not allowed to touch Jesus is the blood of the sacrifice, you remember, uh, was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Uh, right after the death of the substitutionary animal of sacrifice back in the Old Testament. Now Christ is of course our substitute. He was slain for us upon the cross and he entered into death for us. When he arose, he went into heaven, entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat before the throne of God, and forever settled the sin question and delivered us from the curse of the law. This is clearly taught in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.12 is very definite on this. But by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now the Bible also makes plain when he accomplished this, which we just discussed. On the morning of the resurrection he meets Mary at the tomb. As soon as Mary recognized him, she prostrated herself upon him, would have kissed his feet. But with shocking suddenness, Jesus emphatically says to her, Touch me not. And then proceeds immediately to give the reason. For I am not yet ascended my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your, your God. Literally in the Greek, Jesus said, Touch me not for I, am, for I now am about to ascend unto my father. You know, you can understand this by referring back to the Old Testament when the high priest, after he ordered a sacrifice, went into the Holy of Holies before he did anything else with the precious blood of the sacrifice. No one was allowed to approach him. Everyone was shut out until this was completely done. And here in the record of the meeting with Mary, we have a fulfillment of this type from the Old Testament. Mary meets her great high priest, just arisen from the tomb but before he had entered the Holy of Holies with the reconciling blood. And so he says to her, don't touch me. Now at some point after Jesus' encounter with Mary and before the women's report to the disciples, Jesus met them. This appearance is the only one Matthew records in Jerusalem. Jesus confirmed to the women the reality of his resurrection, instructed them to tell the disciples he would meet them in Galilee. The women worshipped him and took, took hold of his feet. That's Matthew 28, 9. You know, this shows us this is not a vision or an hallucination, but a physically resurrected Jesus. He was alive. And it's after he ascended to the Father and presented his blood. In addition, the women's worship is an acknowledgement by both Jesus and the women of his deity. For worship is reserved only for God. At some point during the day, Jesus appeared privately to Simon Peter. 
you know, Peter must have been in deep anguish after looking into Jesus' eyes while in the high priest's courtyard. The examination of the empty tomb did very little to diminish his brokenness. We are not told when, where, or what the conversation entailed. But Peter was a different man after he met the resurrected Savior. Later in the day on Sunday, Jesus walked with Cleopas and an unnamed companion from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Scripture tells us their eyes were hindered from being able to recognize Jesus. The two men were overcome with sorrow. They had heard the women's report of an empty tomb and the appearance of angels. And along the way as they walked, Jesus explained to them from Scripture the necessity of the Messiah's suffering and resurrection. And when they arrived at Emmaus, the two men implored Jesus to remain with them and eat the evening meal. As Jesus prayed and broke the bread, their eyes were opened to immediately recognize him, and he disappeared. They returned immediately to Jerusalem to tell the disciples about it. Now, as Cleopas and his friend are recounting their experience to the disciples, Jesus suddenly appeared to them in the room despite the doors being locked. You know, can you imagine a number or myriad of emotions targeting from utter shock to unmitigated joy? You know, the focus in Luke's account is on the physical reality of Jesus' resurrection body. Jesus offered the disciples the opportunity to touch him. Unlike a spirit, he was able to eat what they had prepared. Luke makes perfectly clear the nature of Jesus' resurrection. Because hallucinations and visions do not eat meals. Then then John describes Jesus' commissioning his disciples and breathing on them symbolically indicating they would soon receive the Holy Spirit. Some believe the disciples received the Spirit in some manner at that time. My understanding is Jesus is breathing on them to foreshadow their, their reception on the, of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now Jesus is abundantly clear they were to preach a gospel that offered the forgiveness of sins. But Thomas was conspicuously absent that evening. A week later, Jesus appeared to the eleven in the same location with Thomas present. You know, Thomas has gone down in history with the nickname Doubting Thomas. And I think that's kind of unfair. You know, we should remember how the disciples doubted the testimony of the women. Later, when Jesus appeared to them, they were hiding behind locked doors. Thomas wanted physical proof, not just second-hand testimony. That's exactly what he got. Thomas's response to Jesus' offer to touch his scars is one of the greatest expressions of faith in the Bible. My Lord and my God, John 20, 28. You know, Jesus commended the future faith of believers like us who do not have the opportunity to see what Thomas saw. Now, these various appearances have raised questions concerning Jesus' resurrection body. He could suddenly appear in a room when the doors were locked. He could be in Emmaus in one moment and the next moment disappear. He could be touched. He could even eat. Jesus' resurrection body had both continuity with his pre-resurrection body in that he could eat and be touched, but also possessed discontinuity because he could be in one place at one moment and another place the next. And this, his body is a prototype of our future resurrection body. 
Paul teaches extensively on the topic of the believer's resurrection body to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now we don't know how much time elapsed before Jesus' encounter with seven of his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. The narrative is straightforward. His purpose may not be immediately clear. When Jesus called his first four disciples, the setting was similar in Luke 5. Sea of Galilee was where Jesus called those four fishermen to become fishers of people. Just as they had a miraculous catch of fish that day, he called them to leave everything and follow him. And then he reminds them now of their original call. See, worldwide evangelization was on Jesus' heart as he taught his followers between his resurrection and, and his ascension. On Resurrection Sunday, he breathed on disciples, commissioned them to preach a gospel that offers forgiveness of sin. In both Luke and Matthew, we find similar commissions to take the gospel to the world and to make disciples. Since Jesus came to seek and save the lost, his followers must embrace the same purpose. This is not meant for our church to be cloistered from the world. He wants his people to be in the world, but not of the world. And after breakfast, Jesus turned his attention to Simon Peter in John chapter 21. And it records one of the most famous conversations in the Bible. You know, if Peter was going to be the leader, he needed to be restored. And just as Peter denied Jesus three times in the presence of their enemy, now he was required to affirm his love for Jesus in the presence of his friends. Jesus calls Peter first to love and service, and then to suffering and death. You know, Peter's going to demonstrate, Peter would demonstrate his love for Jesus by shepherding Christ's sheep. In the upper room, Peter insisted he would die for Jesus. And here, Peter is told he would die a martyr's death. Now, over the next 40 days, Jesus made numerous appearances to his followers. Little is known about the location or the content of many of these encounters. At some point, he appeared to as many as 500 followers in the Galilean hillside. In addition, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James. You know, during his ministry, during Jesus' ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. Later, James became one of the leading figures in the church in Jerusalem. Now, one of the most important post-resurrection appearances involves Jesus giving his followers the Great Commission. These are his marching orders for the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We don't know when this appearance took place or which mountain is intended in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. We do not know, okay, for this, if it happened in Galilee, it would have been fitting, since it was where Jesus called them initially. As to why some doubted, we're not told why they doubted. What is clear is the responsibility of the disciples to reproduce themselves by making disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching, because the one who sent them has all authority, and he would be with them wherever they went. Now, Luke is the only author to describe Jesus' ascension, and he does so in his gospel and in the book of Acts. The account in Acts is longer 
and clarifies the fact that Jesus ministered to his followers over a period of 40 days after the resurrection. So as his 40 days come to an end, he returned to Judea near Bethany. The disciples had already been instructed to remain in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now just as angels were present at Jesus' birth and at his resurrection, they were present at his return to heaven. The angels informed the disciples that just as Jesus ascended into heaven, he will return from heaven bodily, visibly, and with the clouds. Now they must begin the work of world evangelization. Now, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead has been a source of debate from the beginning. It remains a hot spot for the debate over the truthfulness of Christianity. Now, the Roman guards in the Sanhedrin concocted a story that the disciples stole Jesus' body. There are some people today who still hold this position. If the disciples stole the body, then they knew Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what would they have gained? They certainly didn't gain any fame or fortune. All of the disciples except John died a martyr's death and lived lives that were anything but opulent. You know, people may die for a lie they believe to be true, but no one dies for a lie that they know to be a lie. Furthermore, the Gospels describe the disciples hiding out in fear for their lives. It's an embarrassing admission. It's hard to believe the early church would have made up a story of the disciples' cowardice if it were not true. You know, the disciples clearly could not have stolen Jesus' body. Then another argument is, hey, the disciples went to the wrong tomb, which happened to be empty. You know, I'm pretty sure Joseph of Arimathea knew where his own tomb was located. Several women watched as Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus' body in the tomb. The Roman soldiers knew where the tomb was, and so did Sanhedrin. If the disciples went to the wrong tomb, then why didn't the Jewish leadership just present Jesus' corpse and silence the apostles' preaching where it started, there in Jerusalem. Another popular explanation, it's seldom argued today, is the swoon theory. Now this theory argues that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross and they revived in the coolness of the damp tomb. Now, really, knowing what to say to such a ridiculous suggestion is kind of hard to do. Romans were experts at crucifixion. The agony and torment Jesus experienced before the cross caused many to die before they could even be crucified. But once an individual was nailed on a cross, death was certain. The men on the other either side of Jesus had their legs broken to hasten their death. Jesus' side was pierced to confirm his death. You know, there's no viable scenario where this theory can explain that Jesus could escape physical death. Another popular explanation that comes up from time to time is that Jesus' disciples were hallucinating when they thought they saw Jesus alive. The idea behind this theory is that as people grieve the death of a loved one, they're susceptible to hallucinating, hallucinating visions of them still being alive. But believing that so many people in so many different settings had the same kind of hallucination at the same time is impossible to believe. Now, on one occasion, Jesus appeared to 500 followers. Did they all have the same experience? 
hallucinating? And if they did, why did they did these? Why did the why did the hallucinations end so abruptly for all these people? You know, after 40 days, the original eyewitnesses are not reporting any more resurrection appearances. You know, it just doesn't correspond to the historical evidence. Because the historical evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is overwhelming. First, Jesus' followers demonstrated no premonition of a bodily resurrection. They were completely unprepared for it. Second, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. It's not the kind of story first century Jewish men would fabricate. Women were often not considered reliable witnesses because they were thought to be too emotional. Now they, and the Gospels present the women as being much more level-headed and courageous at Jesus' crucifixion and burial. If the disciples fabricated a story, it most certainly would involve Jesus appearing to them first. Third, the transformation in Jesus' followers cannot be explained apart from the resurrection. The disciples in the book of Acts were bold and courageous. Peter preached with stunning courage to people who just weeks before had condemned Jesus to death in the book of Acts chapter 4. Fourth, the discovery of the empty tomb and the appearance of the angels are described succinctly. There's no great elaboration. Now, completely unlike the apocryphal accounts of Jesus' resurrection, if the stories were fabricated, I think we'd expect much more elaborate descriptions. Another reason, a fifth, the early church began to gather for worship on Sunday. Sunday, the first day of the week, instead of the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday. you got to remember, these are Jewish people. You know, something dramatic must have happened for the disciples to begin to gather for worship on the Lord's Day, the day of Jesus' resurrection. And the implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead are numerous. Jesus' resurrection establishes our eschatological hope. For those who are united by faith to Jesus Christ, we have been made new, new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 but that transformation is a gradual process. Little by little, the old self passes away and the new self is realized. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. And at the end of the journey stands Jesus Christ. He is the model or paradigm of who we aim to become as Christians. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. More specifically, at the end of our metamorphosis, stands the resurrection incarnate Christ. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 11. Christians begin their journey through union with Jesus in his death to sin. Likewise, we end that journey united with Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. Furthermore, the truth of the resurrection serves as a source of hope and inspiration for believers. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. When our earthly lives are complete, we look toward the horizon, not to annihilation, not judgment, or a diminished mode of existence. But we look forward to fullness of life as completed new creations in a world washed clean, for, clean from sin. That's Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. You know, Jesus' resurrection vindicates the Christian worldview. 
Paul concluded his famous sermon to the Athenians with these words, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 17, verses 30-31. You know, the heart of Paul's exhortation is a call for the Athenians to repent. But Paul's not simply meaning that they feel remorse for their wrongdoing. The call to repentance is shorthand for a summons to forsake idolatry and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what reason does Paul supply to motivate the Athenians to this course of action? Well, there's the danger of a future judgment by the man God has appointed. In context, that's a reference to Christ. But Paul didn't stop, stop his argument there. He proceeded to lend further proof to the truth of the gospel and future judgment through an appeal to Jesus' resurrection. For Paul, the reality of the resurrection served as proof for the truth of Christianity from God. You can see Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Moreover, what held true in the Areopagus that day holds true here and now. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone upon which Christians support the truth of our worldview. His resurrection was a conquest over the forces of darkness. Though unseen and often forgotten, the world we inhabit consists of both flesh and spirit. Behind the veil of our physical universe stands a vibrant world of spiritual beings. Within this world resides a demonic cohort, led by the devil, that seeks to wreak, wreak devastation on the earth, and especially on God's people. We're warned about that in 1 Peter 5.8. The author of Hebrews informs us that on the cross, Jesus struck a blow against the devil, where it says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Likewise, Paul expands this language of conquest over dark forces to include both Jesus' death and resurrection in Colossians chapter 2. We may wonder, however, what it means for the devil to be holding the power of death and why this power serves as a source of fear for God's people. You know, don't come to the conclusion that Satan and God exist on a level footing. Whatever authority and power Satan possess, possesses, he gains only at the allowance of God himself. We learn that in Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. God has granted Satan for a season the power of death which, with which to wreak his devastation on the world. That's Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Jesus then wins the victory over the devil, not by revoking his authority over death, not by paying a ransom to him on our behalf. Instead, Jesus gains victory by rendering the devil's weapon of no effect. For those to whom the promise of the resurrection has been given, death holds no power. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 58. And where death proves powerless, 
so too does the devil. You know, Jesus' resurrection motivates us for kingdom advancement. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he left his followers with a mission of proclamation, making new disciples in every nation on the face of the earth. With this charge, however, came first a word of encouragement. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. A small cluster of disciples, they had no wealth, no power, no social status, were called by their Lord and Savior to scatter across the globe and teach the peoples of the earth. You know, it's an impossible mission except for one anchor of assurance. The one who possesses all authority went with them. You know, the boldness of a believer to spread the gospel message doesn't come from confidence in his or her own station and abilities. Instead, our confidence flows from the knowledge that we serve the one who is seated on heaven's throne. And only through the resurrection do we gain knowledge of Jesus' cosmic standing. And I'm going to conclude this study with the greeting early Christians used. The Lord has risen. He has risen indeed. Thank you for listening. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this opportunity to have taught the happenings of Holy Week. I ask the listeners, Lord, would take this message and take it to the world, Lord, that they would proclaim your gospel. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.